Welcome to Unlocking Leadership, a podcast about leading in a changing world, brought to you by Corndell, your strategic skills partner. I'm your host, Claire Carpenter. I'm joined today by Lucy Hunt. Lucy is the National Programme Manager for Apprenticeships with NHS England. Hello, Lucy. Hello. Hi, lovely of you to join me. Thank you. Let's start by you finding your voice in the podcast. I know there's lots of big conversations for us to have today, but let's start with you. Who are you? How are you landing? Tell us who you are, Lucy. So I am National Programme Manager for Apprenticeships at NHS England. I have been in kind of the training and education sector for probably about 25 years now. First started working for Video Arts, the management training video company owned by John Cleese. So had a real baptism of fire into sales and leadership there and then moved into colleges and I've been with the NHS for coming up to eight years now. Wow, video arts, you're taking me right back now. I remember using the interviewing techniques video when I was first starting off as a manager myself. Yeah, no, yeah. really hugely popular. So many people still remember that. I, yeah, I show my age when I talk to some of the younger team and they look at me blankly, but anyone like above 30 will have seen one of the videos at some stage in their inductions or training, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah for sure. Oh, funny. Thank you. And that feels like a world away from where you find yourself now then with NHS England. What's been the sort of trajectory of that for you? What's taken you along that path, would you say? So it's always been passionate about, you know, education and helping people kind of better themselves. I was at Video Arts for nine years and got made redundant on maternity leave, but that's another issue. So that was a really interesting time because I was in business development and the company made that kind of same age old mistake of promoting the best salesperson who not necessarily had had any leadership experience or training. But thankfully, I had a whole host of resources that I could draw upon. So, yeah, I watched all of the leadership titles and took notes and things like that. Um, and then when I left there, I went to work for Lewisham and Southwark College. And this was in the early days of apprenticeships when it was still frameworks. And again, that was a real eye opener for me because I was just like, you know, what's the catch here? We're giving people the opportunity to study for a qualification during their working time. It's funded by their employer and had really, really great success there. And then I was headhunted by a college closer to home, Havering College. And while I was there, I set up the first clinical healthcare apprenticeships across London, the local trust that I was working for. Um, And then my contact at the trust, the job at Health Education England. So that's what we originally were called. We merged with NHS England in April. But she basically sent me the job and was like, you've done this for us. Do you want to do it for, you know, the whole country? And yeah, that was eight years ago. There have been lots and lots and lots of changes to the world of apprenticeships in those eight years, haven't there? Yeah. I've been involved in them for a few, but tell us what you've seen change in that time around this place. So for me, I've always been really passionate about apprenticeships in terms of a dual approach. So yes, it's about attracting brand new talent into the workforce. But also for us in the NHS, it's really important about being able to progress and upskill the existing workforce. So, you know, the very first registered nurse apprentices that we had, they were existing healthcare support workers who couldn't have afforded to give up work and go back to university and do the traditional route. They had families and they, through the apprenticeship, got that opportunity. So, you know, 
going to their graduation was one of my proudest moments because you actually realise the power of apprenticeship and how it can change lives. And just listen to them talk, you know, some of them, they were like, because they'd had the opportunity to redo their functional skills, they could help their grandkids with their maths homework, whereas before they used to hide in the kitchen and hope that they didn't get asked any questions. So I just think it's a really positive thing to be able, yep, we do need to do a lot more to attract new talent into the NHS, but to be able to upskill our existing workforce has been a really fantastic opportunity. Retention has always been a real struggle in the NHS, but now if people can see that they can actually become a registered professional via the apprenticeship route, it's win-win. I wonder if you have seen differences between the way that, I guess, the workforce, but also outside of that, the, the wider population receive this world of apprenticeships now than they did eight years ago. Thinking about our response to um, somebody who says, oh, I'm doing an apprenticeship or I'm studying an apprenticeship now versus then, what's different, would you say? It's still a challenge. Uh, sometimes mm. it is grand, Groundhog Day. I think because the NHS, we're such a huge organisation, um, 350 different job roles. So I am still talking to people that don't know about the new apprenticeships. They still have, you know, visions of YTS for plumbers um, and hairdressers mm. back in the day. So mm. they actually, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of that parity of esteem. But it is really satisfying when I convert people. I remember, you know, some of the early conversations I'd have with senior managers in the NHS and talk to them about the benefits of apprenticeship and how they've now got this ring-fenced pot of levy. You know, in in tough times, the training budget is always the first thing to kind of go. So they actually got yeah. this ring-fenced pot of money. Um, and I remember, you know, very difficult conversations. No, no, I want them to do the proper degree. So you have to say, it's the exact same degree. It's just funded by a different mechanism. And we're starting that all over again with the medical doctor apprenticeship, you know, having to kind of fight against all the allegations of dumbing down the profession when it is a GMC regulated degree. We're just giving the opportunity to people that couldn't necessarily afford to do the traditional route. Essentially, you're unpaid for five to seven years if you're a doctor in training. And so that excludes a lot of people. So, yeah, I think it's getting better than it was. I still think there's a lot mm. more to do. I'm finding that myself with my 16 and 14-year-olds still, despite <laughs> what I do. Apprenticeships are a dirty word in their school. My 16-year-old was told, oh, no, you're far too clever to do an apprenticeship. <laughs> Luckily, she said, you haven't met my mum. And then <laughs> I got invited in to do some talks. But yeah, the headmistress at the end did apologise and say, wow, you know, I hadn't realised about all the changes. You know, she still thought it was for the kids that they didn't want to keep on for A-levels. Yeah. That's where it all starts, really, isn't it? In that sort of school place where, you know, if teaching staff aren't aware of the differences now between um, apprenticeships then and now, if you like. You know, it filters out into parents and into and and into the students themselves, doesn't it? Definitely, and I think more so for multicultural families. Something I've really mm. found. Um, so I judge the multicultural apprenticeship alliance, their their uh, apprenticeship awards. And last year when I was doing it, you know, there was hundreds and hundreds of applicants, really, really high caliber. And all of them, literally every single one, said they didn't get any support or advice and guidance in school. And then their second barrier was convincing their parents and families that it was a genuine route, that, you know, it wasn't a scam, that they actually were going to get their degree paid for. So, yeah, I think there's still a lot of cultural issues as well in terms of the perception of apprenticeships that we need to overcome. Yeah. 
So you've talked there about um, some of the non-traditional roles that apprenticeship training can offer um, support with. And there are others, aren't there, as well, in the more technical parts of our organisation, so in particular things like data, technology, or those kind of areas. I wonder what use um, NHS England is making of apprenticeships in those areas as well. So we think it's going to be a big growth area for us. I think, you know, in the NHS, we're embracing the use of more technology and AI. So I think that's going to be an interesting development. But yeah, being able to analyse data, being able to understand, you know, health inequalities and how that the impact of that. Um, so analysing and interrogating data is a really, really important part of that. You know, a lot of our systems are moving to the electronic patient system. So that's a big kind of digital move as well. So it's making sure that our staff have got the skills to kind of move with the times as well and that we can embrace the technology to make things easier for all patients and the, the care that we give. Yeah. And, you know, it's not without its challenges at the moment, is it? or ever has been, frankly. I wonder then about your route into leadership and how you accessed training resources in that space. And you talked about how people who are really good at a particular thing are promoted to lead other people who are doing that thing because of their technical or their expert ability rather than their leadership capacity necessarily. Um, and we've seen lots of really strong examples, I think, over time of you know what the CMI call the sort of accidental manager, mm-hmm. you know, management by results rather than necessarily management by leadership skill. What happens when you notice that within your organisation? How do you support development of leaders through um, your role? I think I kind of draw on my experience when I do see that happening. You know, for me, it was actually really challenging because I was working in a very male-dominated environment. I was the only woman and then I became their boss and there was kind of a lot of resentment there. But I think for me, it was always just being, having that integrity and leading by example. So I still did the day job, but I also worked with them to kind of improve themselves and, you know, didn't enforce what I thought they needed to do we'd have a conversation about you know where do you think you could improve and I found that really helped and yeah when I see kind of new managers in the NHS then it is just kind of offering that support and guidance we do have a lot of kind of resources and internal CPD programs as well so I definitely encourage people to take advantage of them and read you know I love reading a good leadership book there's a you know there's a wealth of stuff out there in the middle of John Amici's book at the moment and he's just an absolute legend and a real inspiration I got I was lucky enough to get to meet him at an apprenticeship event and I don't know you know he's the former basketball player and I was just kind of looking up at him in in awe (laughs) but um, you know we had a really good conversation and we talked about imposter syndrome which I think is a massive thing still and I see that sometimes in colleagues and you know I'll send a little message in the chat saying you know you're doing a fantastic job you're great and I think you know I can definitely see that when people have those kind of wobbles and you know it does come across so it's just helping people to be able to kind of push through that and actually think yep I deserve to be here and I'm doing a great job. What do you think are some of the challenges which are prevalent now for leaders in the workplace? I guess thinking about what might be different now to some of those that we face 10 or 15 years ago even post-pandemic different locations of work the very broad spread of demographics in the workplace now where are the challenges for leaders today do you think? So I think in the NHS, mental health and well-being is a huge part of that post-COVID. You know, it was really, really intense. 
I was sitting at home protected on my laptop. So, but I still was dealing with, you know, apprentices that were being put on the front line in, you know, horrifying circumstances without PPE, without the proper equipment. And that has taken its toll. So I still think we have, you know, a lot of people that are incredibly burnt out because of that. Maybe they have lost some of their passion for teaching the next generation as well, because they've had to be, go through that such an intense experience. But I think, you know, remote working, we really embraced it. And I think because I traveled a lot for work anyway, I wasn't necessarily an office-based person because I'd be out and about across the country. But for some of our team, that was, a you know, a real kind of adjustment that they had to get used to. And also just kind of recognizing that within your teams, you're going to have different personalities and making sure that everyone kind of gets a voice. We had some neurodiverse people in our teams as well, and they were really struggling with that kind of lack of connection. So we had to change our way of working sometimes just to make sure that that was inclusive. But I do think that's a real issue in leadership at the moment. If people can do an effective job at home and there's this move to move people back into the office then it needs to be for a good reason and I think you know collaboration is really important those water cooler moments when you're having a chat over a cup of tea I don't think you can replace them but I don't think it should be kind of an arbitrary enforcement if it's of no real benefit for the team. Yeah it's a really interesting developing landscape of location isn't it in Mm -hmm. terms of where people can work. And it also, I think, opens up lots of debate and discussion around equity and fairness of being able to choose where you work, depending on the role that you do. And to a certain degree, the amount of, I want to say, sort of service user facing in the role that you have. I'm not sure if that's the right language to use for NHS England. Perhaps it isn't. I'm not sure. No, yeah. I mean, it's very different for patient facing kind of clinical roles as opposed to mine, which I would say is probably more HROD role that can be done anywhere. But yeah, and I think, you know, equity is something that's really important with getting people back into the office because carers or people with young children, the move to go back in two days a week well, two days a week childcare is going to be really hard to find. Two days a week respite care, if you're a carer, is actually going to be really hard to find. So we want to make sure that, yeah, we're not losing those part of the workforce that have been able to work perfectly well all through the pandemic. So I do think, you know, there should be kind of exceptions and on a case-by-case basis rather than just a blanket rule, because I think that would potentially destroy morale in any team, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, I agree with you. It was interesting. I was reading yesterday some more research that's been done that talks about how home workers both feel like and actually in the last couple of years can be seen to be less promoted than those who are working in a more office-based environment, I want to say, but one where they have greater exposure and where they're seen more by the so-called powers that be. I wonder what your experience is of that, whether you've seen that play out in your organisation. No, I mean, I, I read similar and I just thought, yeah, that is quite interesting. And I suppose it would depend on your sector as well, where, mm. you know, if you are collaborating and, and that senior manager gets the chance to see someone shine or, you know, I think that's probably there is some truth in that, isn't there? But I think that in our organisation, you know, we've actually worked harder since we've been home based. You know, now I'm not having to do a commute and fight for a hot desk. I'll log on as soon as the kids go to school, eight o'clock in the morning and often work right through till dinner time. So, you know, I think without having that commute, they're actually getting more out of our team. And I think as well, you know, we did recruit apprentices and that was challenging because, you know, I'm very much of, 
old school kind of sit by Nelly when you're telling someone how to do something. So that was really <laughs> difficult, actually, you know, trying to train this young person and only ever seeing their head on a screen. But, you know, we had some workarounds about that. You know, we'd have a Teams channel where one of us would be available if they did want to just drop in and, you know, how do I do this or I'm struggling with this. But, yeah, I mean, it was a big learning curve because, yeah, you normally do, if you're training somebody, they'll sit by you and you'll train them on, on what to do. So we didn't have that luxury. But, you know, she completed her apprenticeship. She's got a promotion and is still with us. So I think it is possible. But yeah, I think it's more that leadership has to be kind of reactive and proactive at the same time, if you see what I mean, because you need to kind of anticipate where potential issues may be. And we did recognise in the wider organisation that, you know, potentially we were very lucky with our apprentice because she, you know, she's very confident and wasn't afraid to kind of speak up. But if you're not naturally that way and you are potentially struggling, I think it was a lot more difficult to reach out. And also we took for granted, again, you know, I'm in I'm in my house, I've got my kids, I've got all my space, but a lot of our apprentices were working in kind of shared houses, all trying mm. to sit around the kitchen table and fight for the Wi-Fi. So there was things that we yeah. hadn't even factored in that actually that younger generation were really, really heavily impacted. Yeah, I really noticed that as well in the work that I was doing. You know, people sat on their bed, like trying to balance a la- actually balance a laptop on their knees. Uh, or on a windowsill or you know on a pillow and that kind of thing exactly as you say you're fighting for wi-fi and you know it's tricky isn't it yeah our organization were really good they basically we already had laptops the majority of us from traveling but yeah estates and facilities essentially switched for six thousand people to be working from home in in less than Mm. a month and as you can imagine for the nhs that was no mean feat but yeah we had a catalog to basically choose a desk and chairs from so they didn't expect anybody to kind of be out of pocket themselves Mm. so i think that made a big difference especially for our younger apprentices as well as you think about perhaps within nhs england there was more capacity to plan for that kind of event i'm not sure Was this something that was part of a register of risk somewhere, do you think, that people were thinking about and it would be able to respond in such a great way as you've just described? If it was, it was way above my pay grade, you know, because <laughs> pandemic, what's that? You know, and then you read that actually we're due them every couple of hundred years. No one told me, but um, <laughs> no, I think there must have been some sort of, you know, mobilization plan for them to be able to do it and do it so effectively. Yeah, I mean, our I, I team were fantastic. Our estates and facilities were fantastic. You know, they did a lot at a really fast pace. But yeah, I would imagine there probably was some sort of outline, but no one expected it. And even working in the NHS, I wasn't kind of, this is not really happening. Lockdown, like, you know, it was just so much of an unknown for everybody. Without being trite and and without in any way underplaying um, the level of really difficult outcomes from that, there have been some lessons for us as leaders to take from the way that that played out in our workforce, haven't there? Perhaps for me, one of the things I've noticed more than anything is the capacity of, of leaders who I've never heard talking about mental health and well-being within their workforce really genuinely thinking about the impact of you know the way the organization is working for their people and that's got to be a good thing right yeah definitely 100% i think you know it was a steep learning curve things that you never factored would be an issue but you know i was lucky that my children are quite 
old and quite self-sufficient, but, you know, we had toddlers and newborns in the back of teams calls. Um, <laughs> and also just the isolation and loneliness. Some of our team, you know, were single and didn't have any family nearby. And it was really pretty bleak for them. So, you know, we had to make sure that we had kind of informal check-ins and we would have quiz nights and, you know, just little things to kind of make us feel connected. And I think, you know, I got to know my team a lot better without actually seeing them in person because we did mm -hmm. get to kind of that glimpse into everybody's day-to-day -day lives and you realize that you know some people have got a lot more to juggle than others but yeah it was it was definitely a learning curve but I do think being more aware of kind of the realities for different people and being able to make adjustments is really really important as a leader. So without a crystal ball and being able to look into the future, I wonder what you are thinking about, what keeps you awake at night now, Lucy, around challenges that leaders face in the next few years within their workplace? I'm kind of half intrigued, half scared by AI and what that potentially could help with in the NHS. I know that in terms of apprenticeships, it's already being utilised really well by some of our training providers and assessment organisations and being able to kind of, you know, get AI to do multiple choice questions and things like that. I'm also very wary of the kind of unease that it could be doing people out of jobs. So I think there's a lot to see how that all plays out. But I think if used properly it could be really useful but I would also be really conscious of it not making that kind of digital divide even bigger and I'm thinking you know in terms of schools and when we were in the pandemic again you take for granted that children are going to have a laptop to use or they're going to have access to wi-fi and it mm. quickly became apparent that that wasn't the case so I do think that's kind of a risk in terms of AI that those that are already you know, left behind are going to be even further behind. I do worry kind of just around kind of culture and corporate culture at the moment. You know, there's a lot in the media, transphobia, racism, you know, there's so many hot topics and people seem to feel free to speak and talk vile things nowadays where, you know, if my mum always said, if you wouldn't say something to somebody's face, don't write it online. And I think that's long yeah. been forgotten now. So that does scare me in terms of, you know, attracting new people into the workforce. Have we got a good culture? You know, are we diverse enough? I think that's a real challenge. And yeah, I, I do worry for the, you know, for the next generation, the younger generations coming up because they have to deal with a lot more pressure in terms of kind of social media and cyberbullying and things that, you know, just didn't exist when I was younger. And we have a duty of care, don't we, as employers um, and as leaders to pay attention to that in the people uh, for whom we have responsibility too, right? Yeah, definitely. How do we support leaders to pay attention to potential warning signs within their area of responsibility that, that somebody might be impacted by? That level of um, your words, the like cyberbullying or or some kind of negativity in terms of their responses on social media, those kind of things. I mean, you see lots of um, very widely publicised um, examples with the BBC, for example. But I'm wondering about what we do day to day in our in our workplace to give leaders some kind of guidance on what to do with that. I think it's just making sure that you've got that kind of safe space for people to speak up. You know, in the NHS, we have freedom to speak up guardians. If something is, you know, actually happening to be able to report and escalate that in a safe space, I think that's really important. And it's just, I think, making sure that you are having regular check-ins. I think that, you know, I know my team 
well enough now that yep someone might have an off day but you know if it's a couple of days or in a couple of meetings then it is just you know putting in time to have a catch up and find out what's going on and I think that's really really important because we are all so busy but when you do start neglecting those check-ins then that's when things can escalate. Yeah and I wonder what we do as well about you know you touched on this earlier thinking about attraction of great new talent into an organisation and thinking about um, NHS England as a prime example. Lots of media attention, which is obviously very unlikely to be the whole story, of course. But more than that, this perception of high pressure, potentially lower reward, lots of expectation of change. How do you work to attract great new talent into the organisation, particular thinking about this place of social mobility and, and making sure that the population itself is well represented within your organisation? So it is really challenging, particularly at the moment. For the first time, our applications for the traditional route for nursing, for example, they're down 25% year on year. Um, that's the figures we've had from UCAS. And that is mm. a real concern. Um, whether they're holding out for a degree apprenticeship could be the positive upside of that. But I think in reality, we need to be really aware of you know, the headlines, the strikes, the low pay, all of that is going to have a knock-on effect in terms of attracting people in, as you say, the perception that it's going to be they're massively overstressed and underpaid. So I think we need to, you know, really focus on the potential. And, um, you know, with apprenticeships, we do a lot around kind of career pipelines and pathways. So you can do level two all the way up to level seven. You can be clinical and change into non-clinical or vice versa. So I think it's just being able to offer that opportunity it's really important in the NHS that our workforce represents the communities that we serve and I think that's kind of the ethos that runs through our talent for care strategy but it is a challenge and I think you know especially now in a cost of living crisis and mm. certainly for some of our entry level kind of level two level three roles we are competing with Audi and Amazon you know my local trust used to have a steady pipeline of level two level threes coming in um, as healthcare support workers but now our Amazon put on a shuttle bus that pick up from all around the town centre and take them out to the warehouse and obviously pay them a bit more and give them discounts and those numbers are falling through the floor so I think it is mm. we need to do a lot of kind of damage repair damage limitation in terms of um, the perception of working in the NHS I think there's a lot to kind of recover from the pandemic but yeah, it is something that we're really aware of that um, there is that perception. And then actually to see that translated into declining applications, we're going to have to do a lot of work to kind of prepare that. It's a really interesting challenge to look at from the outside. And I can only imagine how that impacts from the inside as well. I'm thinking about how you harness the power of people who've had and are having really wonderful, successful careers within the organisation who are doing things they couldn't do anywhere else, surrounded by colleagues they wouldn't have anywhere else with opportunities, you know, that don't exist in, in different organisations and how you can make the most of those stories. 
No, definitely. I think, you know, people aspire to what they see. So we need to make sure that Mm. we have got kind of these positive role models and case studies of people's, you know, personal journeys and the distance that they've travelled. I do think, you know, people obviously choose to work in the NHS, but there's still a lot to be done in terms of kind of misconceptions. And even when I do school engagement, you know, young people, they don't understand where the biggest employer, they don't understand that there's potentially 350 job roles. Wherever I am in the country, if I'm doing any sort of school or college, engagement we will be the biggest employer in that city yeah and you know I know that young people wouldn't necessarily even think of us if they wanted a degree in data or cyber security or finance you know there's a lot more to us than just kind of doctors and nurses so I think yeah. you know it goes back to that kind of early careers engagement and planting the seeds and making sure that you know young people can make informed choices and understand that it actually is a really great place to work and as you say you'll meet people from all walks of life you'll get to do interesting things whatever career you decide to do so yeah I think we need to kind of accentuate the positives and not dwell on the negatives quite so much. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I'm thinking, I've talked about crystal balls, which you you don't have. I'm going to give you a miracle now as well. If you were to wake up tomorrow and a miracle had happened and the shift was in place between attitude of what was possible rather than what was impossible within NHS England, what would be different? What would you see as transformative change in terms of attracting into the organisation and really developing that talent? I think government do have to address the pay issue. I think that's going to be a huge barrier when you hear that, you know, baristas can earn more than a junior doctor. How is that going to attract anybody in? People are wanting to do this because they've got that urge to care and that that's what they want to do. But you do need to be well rewarded for that. And I just think that, you know, accentuating that there is career pathways whatever stage you're at in your career you know we could welcome you as a you know career changer as a mum returning to work you know there's no kind of age restrictions on anything that you wanted to do within the NHS so I think maybe kind of you know focus on those positives but yeah there is I think there is a lot to do around kind of just rebuilding the positive image that you know during the pandemic people you know clapping on the streets and things like that actually translate that into wanting to come to work for us yeah okay stop by <laughs> on saucepans and come and work for us okay that feels like a really interesting place to sort of start to draw our conversation to a close I guess if you were to think about the advice now maybe that you might offer somebody in a leadership role whether or not that's within um, NHS England someone perhaps in one of their first roles as a team leader in that place that you and I both found ourselves in where you know we've been promoted we're suddenly responsible for some other people doing stuff that we did really well what would you say to them are really important lessons to take forwards with them in their first few months and years in uh, as a leader an early manager said to me, always lead by example. So, and I think that stuck with me. That's one of the kind of the things that I do stand by. I wouldn't expect my team to do something that I wasn't willing to do. I think it's not being afraid to roll your your sleeves up and get stuck in if needs be, making sure that your team know that you are supported and that your kind of door, window, teams is always open if they do need to speak to you. But yeah, I think just integrity is really, really important. And yeah, I think, as I said, lead by example has done me well so far. And I think I would, you know, definitely share that as words of wisdom. Thank you. That sounds like great words of wisdom to leave our conversation with today. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. It's been an absolute joy talking to you today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels and please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you found interesting so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Corndell. It was produced and edited by Story94.